Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Greetings everybody and welcome to this new episode of Stargate Archives and I'm going to be talking about Stargate. Yeah, how about that? An actual episode of Stargate, which I haven't done for quite a while. It's all been a lot of B science fiction and horror movies, which are justified by the fact that there's been a Stargate actor in it. And as my guest pointed out, if it was made in Canada, then chances are it had a Stargate actor in it. This week I am joined by Tim. Evening, Tim. Hello. You no doubt recognise his voice from the Gatecast and Stargate Archive's previous episodes. As usual, well, I asked him, I need somebody on the podcast. And he said, of course. He had the choice of an episode. What did you pick, Tim? I have gone with SG-1, because let's be honest, it's the best. <sighs> Nothing against Atlantis, I love Atlantis. And Universe, I like. SG-1's kind of where it's at. No love for Stargate Infinity. <laughs> I have never actually watched Stargate Infinity. I will hold my hands up to that. <laughs> you should watch the first episode. Everybody should watch the first episode and realise Star Trek may have got away with the animated series. Star Wars certainly made hay with animated series. Stargate, not so much. <laughs> that does not exactly sound like a, a strong recommendation. <laughs> It's like, the first episode, watch that. You've got to watch it to realise... First episode? Yeah, just to realise how bad it, it could be if Amazon announced tomorrow we're going to make a 12-episode miniseries Stargate reboot with such-and-such such a director. And we'll go, OK, better than nothing. And then when it comes out, you're crying buckets because it yes. was so bad. Sometimes nothing is better. Some things should be left alone. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I've gone with SG-1, and what might surprise you, I've gone late SG-1. I'm delving into the Ben Browdy years, and we're going with Off the Grid. Ah, Space Corn. Surprisingly, uh, a very enjoyable episode, which I watched... I don't think I've watched Off the Grid since we finished the Gatecast, to be honest. Hand on heart, Stargate hasn't been a must-rewatch series for a while now, basically because eight years of my life was spent watching and recording Stargate, and... I've had enough of it for a while. <laughs> yeah, but I say, you, you, can, you can be forgiven for thinking, oh, maybe I need a bit of a break from Stargate. Yeah, plenty of other things to watch. The great thing is, you can always dip back in. Atlantis, for the most part, Universe, you can't really dip in and out of Universe. You've got to really commit to that. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? SG-1 is much more... It's friendly for the casual viewer. Yeah. Atlantis, you can dip in and out. If you're unlucky, yeah, you might wind up in an arc episode. To be honest, previously ons in that case are kind of useful and they're pretty good at giving sort of backstory in the episode without it feeling like exposition for maybe someone who hasn't watched everything that came before. Especially with Cameron. He is often the vehicle for explaining to the viewer what has happened, what may be ha happening. That I noticed in this episode. That's the advantage of bringing in Cam as the new guy with the established team. Because you, you've even got in that sort of first episode where he's sort of saying, you know, he hasn't gone to SG-1. I mean, yeah, he's gone into SG-1 to lead it, but he wants to work with those people. He wants to learn from them. He's very much aware of the fact he's the new guy. Yeah. And that doesn't bother him. 
he's quite happy to say, yeah, these three have been doing what they've been doing a lot longer than me. Yeah, technically, it's my name at the top of the team roster, but in charge of anything. <laughs> no. no, you really are playing second fiddle to the intellect of Sam and the experience of Daniel and the, the sheer bad acidness of Tilk. I think Cam does get a line like that, doesn't he, at one point? He does actually say to Landry, look, I'm not actually in charge of anything. Carter and I are the same rank. Daniel's a civilian. Tilk and Vala are alien. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much gave up on the idea of me controlling anything a long time ago. Damn it, we haven't even started and we've digressed. I promised I wasn't going to do this. That's perfectly fine. We're still talking Stargate, even if it's not the particular episode. True. I say Off the Grid is a Season 9 episode, episode 16. Uh, premiered in the US February the 10th, 2006. Uh, we got it on uh, February the 14th. And calendar February the 23rd. Directed by Peter DeLuise, who I'm pretty sure I saw at least twice in the background of this episode. Peter, oh, 56 episodes of SG-1. Six of Atlanta, seven of Universe, along with, I think, 27 cameos. The writer, Alan McCullough, he wrote nine episodes of SG-1, eight of Atlantis, a single SGU. Also wrote for Sanctuary, Privatize, he's a producer on Privatize, which just finished its fifth and final season. No direct relation to Stargate, except that occasionally a Stargate actor guest stars. Also worked on uh, Rookie Blue and Rain. So, some decent talent, some experience there for this episode. And as usual, we start off with a previously. We see a, a number of ships, Lucian Alliance ships. We see the briefing room, the scene from the epic basketball game, and Nerus, or Nerus, depending upon which character is actually pronouncing the name. I do love that there's no hard and fast, this is the way you say it. As long as we know who you're talking about, sure, go for yeah. it. Which is the way it's going to be. You know, it's it's like for six or seven seasons with General Hammond and every guest star pronounced gold differently or just pure gold <laughs> we all know what they meant the episode opens up in some woods classic location for an alien world surprisingly sg1 are under fire heavy fire they're not in uniform carrying mp7s instead of the p90s civilian clothing they're not having a great start to the episode are they no it's not the sg1 we're used to especially you know turning tail and running it does all become clear why they're doing that as the episode progresses and fingers can be pointed. But right at this beginning, you think, what's going on? And it gets even more bizarre. Daniel, he uh, goes to the JHD, starts dialing the gate. And, well, something unusual happens, shall we say. I'm fairly certain not a case of Daniel's misdialed and has actually crashed the gate. There's definitely a bit that gets me in that is like, uh, guys, we got a problem. <laughs> yeah. I just love Cam. Yeah, that would be the bad guys shooting at us. Yeah. Um, actually, kind of think the bad guys shooting at you, believe it or not, maybe not your biggest problem right now. You almost wish that the series was allowed to use one F-bomb per season, because this would be it. Mm. Star Trek Discovery can get away with it. The question is, who's going to be the one that drops the F-bomb? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like to think it would be Teal. Yes, because you wouldn't expect it. Exactly. <laughs> it looks around. I watch HBO. <laughs> well, that's the thing. We know from earlier episodes that Tilk has some interesting tastes in Earth culture. You know, there is that there is that wonderful moment where we find out he reads supermarket tabloids. <laughs> yeah. So you can only imagine what he watches on TV. So I, the notion of Tilk properly hardcore swearing in that situation, there's a real appeal there. <laughs> if only because I'd want to see the reaction from everybody else. Yeah, this... It would definitely be, yes, we're under fire, and yes, the thing that we've been alluding to that we haven't actually mentioned has happened. 
but let's just put all of that on hold. Hilk, did you just cast? <laughs> oh, you could just imagine Daniel turning around. Language. <laughs> all cast are going, Hilk! Uh, yeah, so much room for, for levity within the franchise. Yep, the DHD and the gate are beamed up using definitely Asgard beaming technology. No question about that. I think that's the thing, though, isn't it? As soon as you see it happen, you're like, yeah, okay, I recognise that is clearly Asgard technology. I don't actually think that's going to be the Asgard. Loki, he probably would do something like that just to annoy SG-1, but nobody else would because they're our friends, even Heimdall. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> even some of the snootier Asgard in their later appearances are a little bit sort of more... Maybe it's got something to do with, you know... Silly old humans kind of being pivotal in knocking out the replicators, which you, oh, mightier than thou, Asgard. <laughs> yeah, we'll teach them. Yeah, we just got to wait for the right opportunity. Smug human bastards. <laughs> Make us look foolish. Yep, and then we jump to the title. So, yeah, that's an interesting start to the episode. And we get the well-used trope of eight hours earlier. Used a lot in the last few years, it has to be said. Some excellent effect to others you think writers just... Being a bit lazy, maybe? That's the thing, isn't it? That move, it's a real glass cannon. It can work, and it can work spectacularly. But nine times out of ten, I'm sat there thinking, why didn't you just start the episode here? Yeah. If that's the beginning. Yeah, it takes away a lot of the tension. You can't put your characters in dire straits when you know X amount of time later there's going to be running away from the bad guys. In fact, this episode is perfect example because we see later on a time jump which is not explained, and it was so brutal. On this, How many times have I watched this episode? Even then, I thought, what the hell happened there? <laughs> I'm sure I said that last time I watched this episode, and the time before that. don't think we'll have to point it out when we get there, because it's rather blatant. I mean, it is, it's, it's the equivalent of doing a prequel to something. It's the whole problem I have with the Black Widow movie. Yeah. You can't put Black Widow in any kind of jeopardy. We've seen the later movies. We know she survives. <laughs> Which means you kind of spend half the time not caring about her. Yeah. You could drop her in a room filled with clones of Ultron and Thanos and anyone else. And I'm not worried because I know she's in later movies. <laughs> and it's kind of the same here. It's like, I don't really need to worry about SG-1 at any point until we've caught up to where we were at before the credits. Yeah. Then I might start worrying a little bit about them, but to be honest... Not a huge amount, because they're the stars. You only yeah. really worry about main characters in season finales. That is true. And even then, off the time, you know when the cast have re-signed the contracts. Well, yeah, you do now. Back then, not quite so much. Now, the great days when all you had to rely on was a bi-monthly magazine or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right, we're in the SGC, we're in the briefing room, we get a close-up of a biohazardous containment unit, some highly suspicious object inside we know it's basically dyed corn it can be described as a large phallic shaped object which if this was lex would be something totally different oh good god yes <laughs> i'm sure at some point somebody looked at them and thought you know it, it looks a bit like a dildo and the props guy saying well actually no 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 it isn't it's, it's corn honestly it's corn just colored purple Get your mind out of the gutter <laughs> We uh, meet Colonel Albert Reynolds, Eric Brecker, recurring character, 16 episodes of SG-1. Alongside SG-1, giving them some information on CASA and its very addictive qualities. 
So much so, one member of his team kind of got hooked on it. Yeah, you saw, which is impressive because it doesn't look all that. To be honest, I have never understood the appeal of corn or corn on the cob. But it's a staple of the American diet, probably because they grow so much of the damn stuff. Even when you get them little bits of corn in stir fry, oh no, I'm picking it out. Nope, nope. <laughs> so colour it purple makes it even more unappetising. Especially when you think that's not a natural food colour. At least not on earth. True. But even then, allowing for that be like, actually grow that colour or... And if it did grow that colour, do I trust a plant that grows? Hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm just going to not. Heinz has come along, put it in tomato sauce. Yeah, there you go, mate. Lovely. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, if Heinz have done it, but, you know. <laughs> they get the go-ahead for a mission to P6G452, gate through huge castle fields, as far as the eye can see. A farmer comes up, considering this is... The technology surrounding this world is highly advanced, but he's just pushing a handcart. <laughs> he, look, he looks like a rather clean peasant from the 12th century. The actor is Peter New, just the one episode of SG-1, but he's been in Big Sky, Dead Like Me, very prolific voice actor. He seems suspicious of SG-1, obviously we learn that these fields all belong to one person, that one person works for the Lucian Alliance, so there's a bit of intel we're getting through now. Whether you think the Lucian Alliance are a reasonable substitute for the loss of the gold is a totally different matter. <laughs> I know what I think. The Lucian Alliance as a concept isn't bad. I think the problem is introducing them that late into the show when you're already introducing a bigger, badder force. Yeah. It almost kind of feels like we can't keep making the surviving ghoul look stupid. Otherwise, it just becomes implausible that they were as big a threat as they were for as long as they were. But we kind of know that we're going to be taking some big hits coming from the Ori. It kind of feels like the Lucian Alliance was introduced so we could just score some easy wins. It's like we can't just have 22 episodes of us having our heads beaten in. <laughs> so if we introduce a smaller bad force that, you know, if we're coming off the back of a really big loss for us, like, oh, I don't know. The Prometheus getting blown to pieces in the previous episode? Yeah. Yeah, let's have the Lucian Alliance in this episode, because then we can actually have SG-1 win, and it feel like a win, and maybe people will forget that the ship that you additionally didn't like the look of when you first saw it, but it kind of grew on you. Maybe people will forget that we just sort of broke it in half and then <laughs> exploded both halves. Like you say, it might have helped as well if... That have dropped hints of it in, you know, like, oh, uh, the Jafar occasionally, you know, uh, the rebel Jafar occasionally get arms and munitions from the underground, the black market, which is run by these guys on these planets. And obviously the, the idea was that the power vacuum, those people that did that sort of thing, kind of rose up and took the reins. But if it uh, laid the groundwork a bit more, if, of course, they knew that far in advance, it might have had a bit more effect. That's not to say the actual characters involved, Nitan, he was always a great character. Mm. Uh, I don't know if they didn't have enough time to work with them, or, as you say, they would just throw away to uh, make everybody feel better. They're neither too big or too small. They're in that little grey area which doesn't quite work. To be honest, I think the Lucian Alliance would probably work better in something like Atlantis. Yeah, I suppose that's what the Jedi would be for, but they didn't have ships. 
that's the sort of threat you could be looking at. Maybe not tier A bad guy, mm. but somebody that was a serious threat, which you had to avoid, but sometimes you just couldn't. Yeah, it's like, okay, these guys, if we handle them right, we can beat them. It's not a problem. You don't want villains that are jokes. And I realise the irony of us saying this in an episode with <laughs> Neris. Yeah. So, yeah, that kind of doesn't work. But comic bad guys don't work in what is supposed to be a fairly straight show. If you're doing a comedy show, then, yeah, you can have your bad guys be, you know, funny. Yeah, strangely enough, though, they work quite well on Universe. They were more ruthless, very driven, very military, very structured, and that suited that show. Mm. Maybe people listening to this podcast haven't watched Universe yet. You never know. We get the Mr. Shaft. Oh, dear. <laughs> they end up arguing about who, may, who would play the best drug dealer. There are two moments in that debate which I love. I can't quite decide which is my favourite. It's either Cam appealing to Tilk, and Tilk just like, I believe all three of you to be equidistant. Yeah. <laughs> or it's Cam pointing at Carter and going, look, Mary Poppins isn't even in the running. And just that perfectly pitched, hey, from Amanda Tapping. It's mm, chef's kiss. She would have been well within her rights to smack him for that. That doesn't feel like a scripted moment to me. That's interesting, yeah, yeah. That feels to me very much like an ad-libbed moment when Ben just threw it out there and not only was Amanda on the ball enough to pick it up, but all of them were able to keep straight faces and keep the take going because her reaction is just any lower and you think she's, she's not actually offended, but any higher and you run the risk of, uh, of turning her into Stargate Barbie. Which brings me on to something which is something I never normally mention. Can we just discuss Amanda Tapping's outfit here? Yes. Because for eight seasons, unless you've actually had her going for a night out, she's not usually quite so revealing in the top department. Emancipation, yeah, they made a, a whole issue of the fact that you're in a little dress with a bit of a plunging neckline. Rocker Divide when she's in the tank top couple of episodes where she's with Pete was it fifth when she was wearing a summer dress but most of the time she's not she's in normal clothes and this outfit just raise the I've watched too much Star Trek and the Dora sisters the boob window because they've been so good for eight seasons about not doing that all I can assume is that maybe the costume department were working with her earlier sizes from before she had the baby. <laughs> that could be it, yeah. Because given that she's literally had the baby between seasons, which is why she's Sam's not there to start with in season nine, considering they've been as good as not turning Amanda Tapping as, you know, we're not making her the sex appeal for the show, to then yeah. all of a sudden have her in that situation with that much cleavage... That doesn't feel like a Stargate move. No, it isn't. Brad made the point after the Children of the Gods, this isn't our show, this is not what we intend to do, from basically if it's going to be full frontal nudity or... I won't say they didn't, because sometimes they did hire actresses purely for eye candy. And a lot of the time that was the studio saying that we need spice things up a little. Oh, look, Voyager's doing fantastically with that Jerry Ryan and Seven of Nine, who turned out to be... a bloody good actress and a fantastic character who, without it, I probably wouldn't have carried on watching Voyager. But that only works once in a dozen series and it didn't work in Stargate. Mm -mm. So they made the right call, never trying to make Sam anything other than a competent officer and a great human being. 
no matter how you dress a female character, you've also got to decide how you're going to film them. You can have a, a low cut top, but as long as you don't have a camera looking over a shoulder, looking down at a boot, you're okay. I think that's when they were filming Wonder Woman as well. Was it, was it Patty Jenkins who did that? Yeah. A load of women running around in miniskirts, but you did not get many upskirt shots. Except maybe when they were flying through the air shooting First World War Germans. But when Snyder was doing, uh, Whedon was doing it, you saw a lot more flesh, a lot more everything. Which is just the mentality of maybe a man filming it and actresses not having the uh, the contract or the strength of will to say, my eyes are up here. Yeah, I was about to say, in Whedon's case. <laughs> oh, Whedon. damn, damn you, Josh. Damn you. It annoys me when somebody I respect turns out to be not such a nice guy. Oh, my word, I have opinions, and we would be here for a long time. Right. Cam, this is where he gets his big boy pants on. He knows what's best. He can play this drug dealer. He's seen Miami Vice. I'm pretty sure that's what he's thinking, because they are lightly armed. This is a recon mission, and he wants to go and talk to the head guy, because walk in, make a deal, walk out. That's not how it happens. It feels like a move that they should have done with Cam earlier in the season. Ah, uh, before he had a bit of experience. Because it does very much feel like the new guy making the rookie mistake. Which, earlier in the season, you've not got Sam, you've got the Vala influence. Can't tell me that as much as he's gone in there with, uh, you know, I want to learn, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, he wants to prove himself. Yeah. That move, just sort of going off half-cocked, I'm the boss, I'm making the decision, this is what I'm going to do, feels very much more like something that they... That's a card they should have played in one of the earlier episodes, as opposed to at the back end of the season, where it's like, he's been through a lot, and we've not really seen him be that cavalier up till now. Just feels a little bit out of place. You can't really put it down to arrogance or cockiness because, like you say, he should by now respect and understand how these other people think. And the simple fact is that they are not equipped for it. Jack mm. would never have made this decision because he was grounded in uh, recon, black ops, all that sort of thing. He knows, you know, we're in here, we're going to come in, we're going to get out, we're not, we're not carrying standard SEC weaponry, we won't be identified unless somebody, incredibly bad luck if you actually run to somebody you know, they don't, but he walks into it, he plays a big guy, Worrell, or Worrell, as he's pronounced later on, played by Vince Carroza, Carraza, Due South, Haven, Bride of Chucky, another prolific voice actor, plays a pretty good lower-level bad guy. He's like, if he's not he's not a made man, if this were the Mafia, he's a lieutenant of some sort, he's got a lot of influence, this is his little planet, he's responsible for it. He does that really well, as playing the, we're on this planet, so I am a big fish. Yes. But I'm very much aware of the fact I'm only a big fish on this planet. Yes. There's a whole aquarium out there, and there are sharks. To them, I'm a, I'm a little goldfish. But on this planet, I can be a shark. And God damn it, I'm going to be a shark. Yes. And when he gets Cameron, he's simply not going to deal. The old idea that, oh, we've got seven worlds. Oh, well, one of them's a moon. 30 million people. We need a major supplier. Can you give me a referral? <laughs> No, I don't know you, so I'm not going to refer you. B, what do you mean? I'm not good enough for you. Yeah, it's like you can... I get what Cam's approach there was. It was like, okay, this situation is going to go sideways. I need to try and lighten the mood. These aren't people that are going to respond to funny, Cam. <laughs> no. No, none, none of them were laughing. Mm -mm. This is where we get the kind of the little hiccup. Cameron's 
by himself, surrounded by the bad guys, he's, he's on the bench, he's secured. The next scene, they're all running through the woods again. And I'm going, well, how, how did he, what, uh, uh, okay. Yeah, it's like, I feel like to be at least two scenes between, okay, so got them running, fine, and they're all together. We never actually saw them get back together. No. I can understand till Sam and Daniel getting out, because they hadn't been discovered when they backed off that ridge. Yeah, but I say they saw, well, I say they saw, Tilk saw, because it's always Tilk. Yeah. That, you know, we've got people coming, we're not, you know, Cam's not the only one that's got problems. We kind of needed to see Cam getting out of there and linking up with the rest of the team, just as opposed to, okay, we're here now because the start of the episode <laughs> said we were. Again, I've got the feeling that the writers did not know how to write themselves out of that predicament. If they cut the episode for time, that was a bad decision. I can think of other places where if you were going to trim time in this episode, you'd trim it from. Yeah, but that is pretty much where the episode started. We jumped to the SGC, uh, General Landry and Walter, they're uh, reporting that they're actually one or two hours late. That's not good. We also get confirmation from Dr. Lee, off-camera, confirming that the caster is a engineered product, a psycho-stimulant. Which raises a question that I have. Are there two Dr. Lees? Because whenever he's referenced but never seen, Dr. Lee comes across as a really proficient scientist. Yeah. When you see him, however... <laughs> They have never, ever made any kind of conscious effort to make him not a buffoon. He is used a lot for comedic effect, it has to be said. Mm. Which is not too bad, because Bill Dow does play him exceptionally well. Again, he walks that fine line of, you can just about believe that someone that has that many gaffes would be in that job. Because when he has a good day, he has a good day. Yeah. We very rarely get to see his good days. We only get to see, the, the, you know, him and Carter going off to sort of display the new technology that we've invented. <laughs> yeah. Sam gets to show the perfectly working system. Dr. Lee gets the plasma gun that we can make work really easily. But to maintain the illusion that we've developed this ourselves and we wouldn't just got it from aliens, it's going to short circuit and you're going to look stupid. I still remember when Weir comes back and she talks to him about Warcraft. <laughs> I felt real sorry for him. Yeah. <laughs> Off-screen Dr. Lee, okay, maybe he's maybe he's not Carter or McKay level, but he's coming in solid bronze medal. It's still a medal. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's working at the SGC. It's not as if he's second team at Area 51. On-screen, it's like, did you even qualify for the race? Walter's having a few problems with the gate. Final Chevron is not locking... This is one of the things I love about every time there is a problem with the gate. And I have to assume it's deliberate. Gary Jones gets this look on his face. And it's a mixture of he's personally offended that the gate won't work. And also there's a little part of him that's terrified the gate isn't working because of something he's done wrong. <laughs> I know. It, it must be difficult being in charge of that little part of the system. Because a lot of the time... When there's a fault, it's nothing to do with you. Mm. This system is jerry-rigged to work with a millennia-old system built by ancient aliens who were so far advanced it's laughable. So if something goes wrong, there's not a lot you can do. All you can say is, it ain't working. Every time he gets this look, and I could almost picture if he was in a room on his own, he would be talking to it. <laughs> it's like, why aren't you working? What are you doing to me? Why? Yeah. What is wrong with you? But because nine times out of ten in the control room, he's either got Hammond or O'Neill or Landry standing over him. It's like, 
think this is my fault if I don't come up with something quick. I don't know what's wrong and Carter's not here to take the heat for me. You need kind of a notebook with make up all these error messages that don't mean anything but sound technical. Uh, sir, the computer's reporting error 274. Semiconductor A is short-circuiting. I'll uh, get Sala to look at it. Good man. Walter, what's wrong? Oh, it's a 494, sir. There's nothing we can do. You see, if you just sound like you know what you're talking about... That's it, yeah. As soon as you use numbers, you would have seen O'Neill's eyes go slightly... <laughs> okay, maths, that's not me. Carter? Yeah, it's a magnet, sir. There's a science thing happening here, Sam. I need you to, you know, do, make gate work. I'm going fishing. Give me a shout when you fixed it. So, we're back at the compound. Hey, surprise, surprise, SG-1 have been captured again. Oh, yeah, corn patrol. That I laughed at. <laughs> yeah, they're uh, they're finding it very difficult to talk themselves out of this predicament. They're in a position where the villains of this scene, if you want, not really villains as such, they're, as you say, Worrell, is, this is just his little part of the big picture. He's got to look after the casa, make sure it gets to market, meet his delivery times... He gets some authority over probably 20 or 30 goons and God knows how many locals who are doing the farming. And he's got just enough power that he can play this little game. Unfortunately, as we know, he's on the losing end of this. Fortunately, so are SG-1 because they've got nothing to bargain with either. Yeah, that's the only advantage that he's got is he's not one of the four people that's tied up in front of him. Yeah, that's about it. And it looks like, you know, they've uh, given him a bit, a, bit of, a bit of a beating already. One of the rare instances, I mean, obviously, we, we, we never we see Cam get hit a couple of times. Probably by dint of, he's the mouthiest one there. Yeah. Oh, aren't we surprised? One of the later scenes, you see that they've been hitting Sam as well. Yeah. It's kind of rare for the bad guys to actually try beating up on Sam. If they're going to hit anyone, it's going to be either Jack if he's there... Jonas, if he was still there, would have been prime beating material. <laughs> or Cam. You're not going to hit Tilk. No. Because honestly, what's the point? You're just going to hurt your fist. Exactly. And we haven't got the fun ghoul torture sticks. <laughs> Otherwise, yes, Tilk's fair game. But I'm not going to hit Christopher Judge. The man's huge. Break my knuckles, and he's not even going to notice it's happened. But normally, Sam is she's torture-free. So when you then see a scene with blood across the face, you're like, oh, okay. The Lucian Alliance are just going to beat everyone up, yeah. apart from Tilt, for obvious reasons. It would be a very disappointing end to the legend that is SG-1 if they died on this world at the hands of Worrell. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, we fought system lords and replicators. We've dodged black holes and exploding. We do not get taken out by this guy. <laughs> But it certainly looks that way. That's the beauty of this episode. They do write tension and the suspense into it. We know they're not going to die. We know that. But for a while, that little doubt at the back. Even though he's trying very hard not to, they kind of prove that Worrell is the wrong guy for this job. Because the argument of why would we make the Stargate disappear before we went through it... Yeah, bad timing. Allow for all <laughs> the bad timing and things not going... No. He knows SG-1. Okay, he might be a bit confused by Cameron Mitchell and not Jack O'Neill, but he is aware of SG-1, who they are, what they're about, and what they do. As much as you are the big man on campus on this planet, even if he doesn't admit it to anyone else, he has to know in his own brain that SG-1 is way out of his league. Yeah. That kind of stupid shit might happen to him. You know, he even says it, you've toppled system lords. 
I understand you might not like the fact that you don't understand what's happened, but maybe you've got to give over to the fact that maybe SG-1 don't know what happened. Maybe they're as in the dark as you are. Not even on your best day. You got them because compared to what they normally carried, they were basically shooting spud guns at you. <laughs> I mean, if they had one Zat gun between them, they probably wouldn't have been running to the Stargate. They would have probably taken a leisurely stroll, got there before the Stargate got nicked, and they'd have been none the wiser there was a problem. Like you say, that's probably why Worrell has this position within the organisation, because when he lost communication with person next up on the chain, he couldn't make a sensible decision. Ultimately, he came to the point where, look, I've got nothing to lose, I've got no orders to the contrary, I'm just going to put a bullet in you, and then we're going to try to sort out a way to talk to my people. Which is where we leave it for a second and go to the SCC. Uh, Landry and Walter again, they can get plenty of screen time. Colonel Paul Emerson, the commander of the new uh, BC-304 Odyssey, played by Matthew Glaive, appears on six episodes. I know him best from The Wedding Singer. Uh, also been in Jag and The Rookie. We jump to the Odyssey. <laughs> Kevin Marks is at Navigation. One of the few actors that appeared on SG-1 Atlantis and Universe. Captain to Major as well. They're running the Shakedown crews. They get uh, the message from the SGC. Shakedown is about 90% done. Hyper engines are okay. We're about 22 hours away from uh, P6G. So let's go save SG-1. In itself, fantastic. And to be honest, I do prefer the Daedalus class to the Prometheus, so it's nice to see that <laughs> yeah. ship in more than just Atlantis. Even though, yes, we know, probably cost-cutting effects, so we only have to use one set of stills. But I'm sat there thinking, hang on, you're a day away. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's going to be a rough day for SG-1. That really is. I hate it at times when you watch an episode and they're running concurrent scenes. They can say, oh, this is happening on place A at this time and this is happening place B. But they're not simultaneous. And sometimes you've got to do the mathematics in your head and thinking, this must have happened about 12 hours earlier to make this work. Hmm. SG-1 have not been tied to the bench for 24 hours. Odyssey must have jumped towards that planet almost, what, they were two hours late. So give them another couple of hours to figure out what they need. As soon as the gate disappeared, four hours later, Odyssey is on the way. But that's not what we see on the episode. And also, yes, they don't know what's happening to SG-1, so they don't know that they're having the Ever-11 crap kicked out of them. There doesn't seem to be much urgency. It's like just the fact you've lost contact with SG-1 should be enough to warrant some concern. Yeah. Landry sort of just giving the orders like he's sending Emerson down the street to buy a bottle of milk from the corner shop. Like maybe just one scene with sort of the Odyssey en route with Emerson getting antsy with, you know, the traditional, you know, can we make this crate go fast? Is there anything we can do? Been however long anything could be happening to them, which would then cut into what the scene of anything would be. But as it is, it's just like, yeah, casually, we'll go and do it. 22 hours using the FDL engine. That's quite a distance. They weren't close. Or maybe just like a line from Mark saying that, you know, yeah, hyperdrive is working, but do you think running it for nearly a full day is actually such a good idea? Yeah. But having said that, at least they don't go for a slot. At least he's actually sending a more or less operational ship. They've not gone for an Enterprise B approach where we're launching it and <laughs> yeah. nothing, hardly anything that you would think you wouldn't not have a ship have. Yeah. It's coming until Tuesday. You can see the dot workers still working on open panels. Are we missing something there? No? Really? Okay. <laughs> we get a quick view back at the compound. More scenes of Worrell baiting SG-1. 
Tilk. He's not making a dint in Tilk either. Well, physically, a little damage, but not too much. Tilk's certainly getting him worried, though. You see the doubt on Warlord's face. He's beginning to realise, yeah, he's played this wrong. And unfortunately, you can't really show weakness in front of the Lucian Alliance because any one of his men could put a bullet in his head and pretty much uh, make up any story and claim the bounty or whatever whatever it is from uh, the Masters. Mm. I kind of like that because that scene, you've, you've actually got the sort of tone shift for both of them because Cam stopped trying to be funny now. Yeah. And now he's got to the point of like, look, let the others go. This is on me. It's almost like early season Cam has taken over from Dude Bro Cam. Although I did like that one smart-ass line when Worrell comes back in. It's like, you are wearing the furrowed brow of a deeply worried man. Yeah, that's pretty complex language, really. <laughs> Expresses what he thought. It's very accurate, though. All ran. Everybody's thinking, how did we get into this mess? This should have been an easy mission. Now, in Worrell's case, I've captured SU-1. My prayers have been answered. I'll be given a pay raise. I will go up in status in the organisation. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Yes, I've lost a Stargate. Even though that wasn't actually anything I had any control over, that is going to go down as a black mark in my Lucian Alliance record. Okay, I'll get that. Think the fact that I have got SG-1, big green tick next to my name, is going to be bigger than the black mark. It's SG-bloody-1. At the very least, that's got a rate like Lucian Alliance Employee of the Month. <laughs> you you know they care when they have an Employee of the Month scheme. Or at least that might be a thought you'd have if you were in any way, shape or form as big a fish as you thought you were in your own head. Yeah. He's confident he can clean up his mess, but he's not going to benefit from it. And that's where we kind of leave SG-1 at this point. Back at the SGC, we get the revelation that someone is stealing Stargates. Tokra are giving them some insider information that it was Asgard beaming technology, but obviously not the Asgard. They update Colonel Emerson and decide they're going to pay Area 51 a visit. Do you think there was at least some point where there's like, I know we're probably going to lose points for this, but should we maybe just dial up the Asgard and say, look, we're not saying it's you. <laughs> By any chance, and I'm sure for completely legitimate reasons, maybe borrowing some Stargates for something, no? No harm in asking. Thor, buddy, we've been through a lot. Yeah, and if they look at you in that eerily eye-piercing expression and ask, why? No, 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 oh, wrong number. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, boy, did I ring the ad? <laughs> boy, is my face red. Sorry. Yeah, you can almost imagine Thor turning up and saying, what's going on? Thor, buddy, it's nice to see you, but... What the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Which also raises the point, considering that they've got very few features, they do facial expressions really well. Oh, you can always tell what they're thinking. I mean, considering that the Asgard are basically a big head and big eyes and a really tiny mouth, they do facial expressions better than some actual people. I still love Thor's reaction when Sam hugs him. That is fantastic. We mentioned Heimdall before. Every nuance of his expression just emphasises his hatred for everything human, his disdain for being on board that ship. It's like, you are beneath me. You know it, and I know it. But what really bugs me is that you can do things we can't. Yeah, but when Shepard came on board, he's not wearing any clothes. And I also love the fact, as if almost to prove the fact that, you know, Ben Browder was supposed to be Shepard, when you finally have Cam meet the Asgard... No, they're not what I'm expecting. Well, what are you expecting? Pants. 
Although I think the best sort of Asgard and new team member moment is in Unending with Vala. Please, the wonderful in-joke when she says to Daniel, how can you tell which one's which? And obviously because Michael Shanks' voice is Thor, Daniel's just like, it's the voice. I mean, it is a good question because they've been cloned so many times, the individual characteristics, features have all blended together. But you can tell, even before they start talking, I don't know if it's just the way they're, when they use the puppets, the way they were carried themselves, or and that carried through when they did the CGI variants. I suppose you're kind of tricking yourself. You know you're on board the Odyssey or the Daedalus. You know, you're at the SGC. You know which one's coming, even if you've seen the credits, such, such as, as Thor or such as, as Heimdall. You don't see Thor and think, that's Heimdall. No. You just somehow know. And they are a great alien. On such a tight budget, they are a great alien. And the fact that they're the greys, they are simple. They're straightforward. There's nothing too complicated. It's what you would do if you think, I've got to make an alien. He's got to be able to interact. He's got to be able to occasionally walk, full body as well. Can't make it too difficult. In fact, if you're thinking long term, the more advanced we get with our capabilities of uh, actually generating this image, we don't want it to change too much either. It's not like, you know, five years later, oh, we've got this technique. It'll look so much better, but it'll look different. And for all the advancements the CGI and visual effects departments made over the 17 years of Stargate, a lot of the aliens remained what they originally looked like, which I think is credit. And also, the sort of comparison, I love the fact that the most advanced species we really see in Stargate, visually, is the most basic representation of an alien. Yeah. You know, it's the first thing most people would think of. Big grey head, big black eyes. It's something that people instantly recognise. So I just love that that most basic of image, we're going to connect with scary advanced aliens. And to Capitol, one of them used to go around kidnapping people and probing them. So we were right! Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Right, the general pays a visit to Area 51, which at the time I didn't realise... Why are the trees in the background? Yeah. Or is Area 51 in Nevada one big smokescreen? That's what I think. Don't look over there. Look look at that. Look at that big airbase. Those mysterious hangars. There's Area, that's Area 51. Ah, I like it. You're going to have all those thousands of Americans rush Area 51. Meanwhile, back in the real Area 51, they were watching it on television just going, <laughs> Yeah. They won't find anything. It dumb schmucks. This is where we find Neris, if you recall, was threatened with being put in was it the deepest pit until you decided to help. What would make me help? Hunger. Frightening concept, really, because I'm pretty sure that breaks a number of rules. Mm. I'm also thinking that that would actually take a very long time to starve him to death, because the symbiont would keep him going. Yeah. Probably get to the point where you were cursing the snake. I like the fact that in the later scene, he points out the fact that I'm not human. And he's right, he's not. We assume that, you know, there's a, a gold inside of him. Yes, of course there is. But we make the assumption that that humanoid body was from a world seeded from Earth. may not have been. Mm. Odds are, it does, because we haven't really found any other alien species that look exactly like us. But who knows, maybe he were one of the rare few. I do love that whole general approach. Is like, how do we explain the fact that most aliens look human? A thing that Star Trek just completely... It's just like... Let's say they are humans. As a narrative, it, it works. As with any science fiction, as with any storytelling, you look, in, you know, start nitpicking, you're going to see lots of threads you can pull. 
that's not limited to sci-fi just by itself. It's, it's every sort of uh, literature or storytelling. If you look closely, you can rip anything apart. So Look close enough, you can see the strings. Yeah, exactly. The question then becomes, are you going to let that bother you and take away from what is a good narrative? Yeah. I can pick apart anything, even the things I like. They're the things you've watched most. Hmm. I've never subscribed to the theory that because you like something, you have to be blind to its faults. It's like, you know, it's safe to say, anyone that's looked at my Twitter, listened to me on a podcast, you know I have a liking for Babylon 5. I can tear that to shreds. Doesn't stop me going back to it. No. <laughs> there is no such thing as a perfect and then insert anything. You can't have a perfect show, game, movie, whatever, because it's all been made by us, and we're pretty flawed. It's inherent in the species. thing made by a pink squidgy human is never going to be perfect, because <laughs> we're not. Right, Landry is uh, negotiating with Nerus, basically offers him food, a feast, a feast of epic proportions. This is very tempting for Nerus, although he looks to negotiate, but the general's not having any of it. Got to remember, Maury Shakin, he passed away a couple of, well, not a couple of years ago, about five years ago. Appeared twice on SG-1, also appeared in Entourage, Eureka, Dusauf, Lex. This character, he was over the top, a gold like we've never known before. Supposedly very smart, one of Bowles' main scientists, very intelligent, he was... Or at least he claimed to be originator of lots of the hacks of the Stargate system. Whether or not he was is debatable, depending upon events that play out. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's a fantastic thing to throw out there, because it could just as easily be absolute truth or absolute BS. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you look at him, I'm having a hard time connecting you as being genius of all geniuses. But on the other hand, I can totally see Baal taking credit for your ideas. Oh, yes. Because that's just the kind of guy he is. Could be a genius, you could just be a bloody good bluffer. I don't think I really need to find out which it is. Whether or not he came up with the information by himself or he managed to acquire it, doesn't matter. He's got something the SGC needs, and the general has Turkey. Which ordinarily you wouldn't think would be a deal-breaker, but... No, it's like, oh, this is, good. this is great chicken. This is turkey. <laughs> a much rarer delicacy. Easily swayed, Nerys is. <laughs> That's for sure. I reckon Landry just gave him fart. He could have just waved a bacon sandwich at him. If he's been in Area 51 that long on prison food. Yeah, you just walk in and you start eating a nice double cheeseburger, having the fat drip down your fingers and, you know, let the smell waft into his cell. I know we'd give up first. Hmm. Yep, Landry's walking out there having not to have spent quite so much money at the local takeaway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no point giving takeout leaflets and menus to Nearest. He just says, order one of everything. Give me two of that one. That one sounds interesting. At the compound, things are definitely not looking good. We're more valuable alive. Oh, good one. <laughs> they can't even think of a good comeback. Yeah, it certainly looks like the end is nigh for SG-1. Also get confirmation that... Bal may be behind the stealing of the Stargates. The life of SG-1 is ticking down to seconds. The guns are getting closer. The triggers are being pulled back. And 
the people that look like they've been itching to kill us for we're led to believe a day bit of a question mark on that one but it's now looking less inclined like someone's gonna stop them from sam if you've got any like sun blowing up style ideas here we really do or tilk if you've just been waiting <laughs> for the perfect moment to basically just flex snap your bombs and go crazy now would be a great time daniel if you've got anything because by this point we have turned daniel jackson into a bit of an action hero oh yes definitely this is not the little boy we met in the at the very beginning that you know went to alien planets and sneezed you think back we had jolinar she used her body to get what she needed Undercover operative, she did what was necessary to escape capture, mm-hmm. escape imprisonment. If they had wanted to make this episode a lot darker, they could have played on that very easily. You've got all these guys, there don't seem to be many women around, and they've got Sam Carter tied to a bench there. It would have been ballsy to do it, but see just the three guys there, and then you hear a load of gunfire, Sam comes out, not fully clothed, battered, bruised, holding a gun. Come on, lads, let's go. I've really had enough. We need to go. Yeah, and all of them not daring to ask the question. Because mm. she's been in there a long time. That would have been SG-1. That would have been Universe. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, totally see Universe pulling that move. But by the skin of their teeth, literally, because bullets strike the bench just as they've gone. There were some pretty well-placed shots there, weren't there? Yeah. I mean, to be fair... When you're standing that close, I imagine it's difficult to miss. But I imagine still doable. But it's like, oh no, that would have been a that would have been a keeper. <laughs> you can just imagine all of them there, guns cocked, fingers on the trigger, and one of them just flexes. Daniel's dead. Oh, sorry, boss. I told you to wait until I gave you the order. Then they get beamed up. <laughs> Daniel's been shot in the head. Oh God, Daniel. Be like Daniel's been shot. Ah, uh, Daniel's been shot before. We haven't got a sarcophagus. Ah, could be a problem. Uh, any any kind aliens up there gonna send him and then banish him again? Nope. I also love the fact you get that look of realization on Warrell's face. Oh yeah, the one thing that might have saved him. I have made a bit of a hash of this. I'm gonna have to come clean when the bosses get here because if I don't, one of these lot sure as hell will. Oh yes. I'm in trouble. Yeah, you know, half of them have got enough intelligence to be uh, looking for a way out already. Mm-hmm. Right, we're on board the Odyssey. Four of them are standing there, not sitting, standing there, relieved looks on their faces. And also, during the beaming process, a lot of the damage that was done to Sam's <laughs> face has disappeared. Yeah, that is true. There was a lot more blood on your cheek when you were on that planet. I mean, that's unusual. I mean, we've seen enough behind the scenes to know they have people who their sole purpose is to make sure jumping between scenes, the continuity is preserved. Mm. Yet they let this go. Not that big a deal, but obviously you saw it. You you pointed it out. It does stick out a bit. And it's one of those things. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. It's there. Her entire ear style just kind of changes as well. I'm looking at the screenshot now. There's Sam. Fringe is right across her face. She's got blood coming from one side of her mouth. Her left hand cheek. Big riblet of blood. Looks like a wound just on top of her cheek. You jump to the Odyssey. Not a mark. Not a single mark. <laughs> and you're right. That's going to be bothering me now every time I watch this episode. <laughs> I say, like you say, just the beaming process. They were sat down, yeah, <laughs> but they arrive on the Odyssey Bridge, standing up. Oh, it would be so funny, wouldn't it, if they beamed in, supposedly sitting down, and they just all fell. Oh, that would have been so funny. <laughs> I, I, I know, I'd have laughed myself silly. 
I would still be laughing myself silly every time I watched it. <laughs> it would be one of those things. It would be the scene you remember. Yeah, that's maybe one of the reasons why they didn't do it. We're in the Odyssey briefing room. They've got some intelligence on ball. I like the fact that they've all got secure pads. It's good. You know the thing that I like they've got? Yep. Evidently, in the gear room, they've got a drawer with SG team patches in. <laughs> oh, yes. Because they've not gone for... I mean, I can understand they've got the sort of the, the black uniform thing. Yeah, fine, great. But normally, you would just have, like, the bare patch where the Velcro bit hadn't been put on. But no, they've actually got SG-1 team jackets. Oh, yeah, they're the, wearing the black BDUs as well. You thought that, oh, we've only got flight suits, guys. <laughs> we've got some spare of them. You can wear them if you want. It's like, what, was Emerson a collector and just had them on hand? <laughs> yeah, he's like Colson, wasn't he? <laughs> it's like, why have you got SG-1 team patches on there? Yeah, you never know. Back at Area 51. Oh, God. How did Neris get all that food on the bars of his cell? I don't know, but I'll see that and I will raise you how come there's none over him. Yes, good point. Him and Landry are clean as a whistle. Those bars are awful. And when Landry has the line about how he's got the worst table, it's like, no, that is beyond bad table manners. That should be physically impossible. Again, I wonder if that's the point. As he says, he's not human. What if he's like a predator? His, his old jaw opens up or something. But there's cupcakes, so that's good. To be fair, cupcakes would probably be my deal breaker as well. This is where Neros gives General the opportunity to think things through. What do you think? Why do you think this is happening? And as he points out, you're thinking too small. This isn't being done for ransom. Vol thinks of the big picture. What did he used to have? What has he lost? What do you think he wants? And it clicks. He lost an empire. He lost a dominion. Why isn't he going to create it again? And the great thing is, Bal is smart enough to think, what if the Jafar win? What happens then? And can I survive it? And if I survive it, what do I have to do then to protect myself? And also, I thought that was a nice little get around. Because originally, you sat there and thinking, why is he talking to Nerus, who's been in an area of... He doesn't know what's going on outside. It's a contingency plan. Nice little workaround to get yourself out of a hole there. I like it. And also, Nerus finally plays his card. He will give no more info unless he gets freed, which is something that General says is simply not on the table. And they are both playing poker very, very well. Also, it was nice to have that moment where Nerus stopped playing it for laughs. Suddenly you think, yeah, I believe this guy's intelligent. And the only thing that amazes me that they didn't do for that scene, that would be the moment that I would have had him break out the gold voice. Oh, just for emphasis. Mm. Or maybe go for the glowy eyes. Yeah. Just something to emphasise that, yeah, you've given me food, but I've still got what you want. In this situation, you need me more than I need you, so you need to sweeten the deal. At this point, we're thinking, one of them's going to break. As the general walks out the door, one of them is going to break, but no, neither of them does. So you're left there thinking, what's going on then? Next, we jump into orbit of a planet. There are multiple attacks. We learn that they are Lucian Alliance, Tan's fleet. Tan is played by Eric Steinberg, appeared on five episodes of SG-1. Also been on SEAL Team, Supergirl 24, Abalone 5, and Star Trek First Contact. He plays a good villain. He always looks very serious, very disciplined, smartly dressed. 
Of course, when Worrell comes comes in, a little bit more ragged, nervous, worried, you think, oh dear, poor Worrell, he's going to get it now. You sat there and you're like, there is no situation where he leaves the scene alive. No, because he's got nothing to offer. Even worse, Nitan comes across with, this is what you should have done. Mm. It's like, you had SG-1 for a day, and you've got nothing to show for it. <laughs> yeah. Do I even need to list the ways you screwed up right now? Yeah. And I love the fact that just to add salt to the wounds, it's like, and on top of that, we've got a boatload of Kassa that we can't do anything with because you haven't got a Stargate anymore. Yeah, which is interesting, which probably shows that while the, the Lucian Alliance fleet might be pretty well equipped with Hattax, cargo ships, not so much. Which, again, you sort of sit there and think, it's like, you should not use the motherships. It's like, yeah, I realise relegating them to cargo ship is a bit bit beneath the pay grade, but, you know, since you are essentially a business, you're not going to make money off of rotted cassa, so maybe <laughs> use what you've got. Yeah, that's true, yeah. It makes you wonder, though, how... We learn later how many gates have been liberated during recent weeks, months. But I wonder if a number of them came from Lucian Alliance wards as well if this is not just the first caster-producing world that's been isolated, taken off the network. You kind of have to think that maybe it is, because I can't imagine that as on the ball as Natan is designed to be, he's not going to leave that much of the caster operation to Mr. I lost SG-1 and a Stargate in one day. Hey, I'm oh. getting promoted. I'll put it this way, uh, tomorrow you can't do any worse. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. It's always possible for the bar to get lower. <laughs> uh, we jump back to the SGC in the gate room. Uh, Nearest is being released. They've done a deal. The general has even provided extra cupcakes, which Nearest is delighted with. That's the thing. It kind of hurt me that all of a sudden he's back to being the buffoon again. Yeah. It's like, no, this would be the moment to maintain the edginess. This is where you should be smug because you've got what you wanted. You're getting out. What if him and this symbiote are in a union by choice, like the Tokra? Literally, the symbiote doesn't have to control him 99.999% of the time. Most of the time, they are in perfect union. Nerus gets off with it. Yeah, and when it goes gold, is the moment the symbiote's gone, look, okay, no, I, I just need to take the wheel. I just need to steer us away from the edge of the cliff that you're heading towards. <laughs> Trust me on this. Yeah, and we think, okay, Nerus has given him the information he wants. The general, they made a point of it. I give you my word. My, my, you know you know me well enough to know if I give you my word, you will not be followed. What did he say? And Landry's just like, I'm a man of my word. And you sat there and you're like, you don't strike me as a stupid guy, Landry. So why the hell are we letting this fool go? Yeah. Obviously, did we dial the coordinates? Nah, it's probably a black hole. <laughs> you didn't trust him? Nope. <laughs> Which, again, still kind of leaves you as the audience member screaming, then Why? And we learn, quite quickly, Beacon been placed on Nearest. The coordinates are being picked up by the Odyssey. We know where Nearest has gone. Status of the Odyssey, weapons and navigation are at 100%. And shields, well, they've been tested under simulation. They're not battle-ready, but they're as good as they're going to be, considering this is a shakedown cruise. So again, FDL towards the location of Nearest, which they believe is going to be ball. And they were right, because we jump to another attack. Nearest is just ringed on board. His mouth is covered with that pink cupcake frosting. Which, again, contrasts to the scene where he's managed to get food all over the bars. 
yeah, yes. he's clean. But apparently this time he's just, I mean, what, did he just get, literally just get the cuff cake and stick the whole thing in his face? <laughs> it certainly looks like it. It was a long trip. He was peckish. And Bowl walks in. And rest in peace, Cliff Simon. What a magnificent goal. His tailoring is superb. His carriage, his stance. He got instantly what they wanted this guy to be. Yes. And he plays Arch to perfection. It's never not enough, but he never overplays it. No. Which sometimes Peter Williams could do with a poffice. Oh, Peter Williams was more the larger-than-life, look-at-me-I'm-the-peacock. In fact, his old officer's old persona was glory in my presence, whereas bowls tremble in my presence, because you don't know what I'm going to do next. It's like, you see Apophis in the gold armour. You could never see Baal wear that. You can see Baal look at it and go, no, I'm going to wear actual clothes and not a reskin of what we make the Jafar wear. My granny knitted me this armour. <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to go for long flowing leather coats. You know, things that look like clothes and not an action figure from the 80s. <laughs> and I love the fact that Nerus is, great to see you, mate. Fantastic. I got away. You know, I jumped through nine stargates to get to here. No, no chance of them following me. We're friends, aren't we? Yes, I may have helped the all right, but don't worry about it. It was a momentary lapse. <laughs> I mean, it's the equivalent of it was just once and it meant nothing. Yeah, I'm back again. And I also love that fact that throughout the whole scene, every time you're looking at Cliff Simon, his face is saying, I don't believe a word you're saying. I don't trust you as far as I can throw this ship, but I'm aware of the fact you might still be useful to me. So as long as you can still be useful... I'm going to put up with you. Yeah, he's consciously making a decision. Are you worth keeping around? And he's weighing up everything he says. And you almost you can see the scales in yep. Bowl's mind. Keep alive. Keep alive. Oh, kill, kill, kill. No, keep alive. Oh, no, that points against you. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's getting tense. And then we get the surprise. He welcomes him on board. One of the Jafar picks up the cupcakes. They start walking through the corridors. And they get to a T-junction, and there's another ball, and another ball, and Nerus looks amazed. As I say, that he goes from looking amazed to actually really then confused. It's like, how, who, what, where, why? Can't even then just say, well, you must be the bad one because you've got the beard. <laughs> I'm never quite sure how I feel about the clone thing. I suppose it's allowed him to kill off a lot. It does give you the advantage to, hey, we can kill Baal every other episode. Yeah. Hell, in this episode, we kill four in one go. Yeah. And always bring you back for the next one and say, ha-ha, there are more clones, or yeah. this was the original. There were some episodes that were structured that the only way they could end was by killing one of the clones. So you take that away, then you've really got to think of something different. Hmm. Cloning is part of science fiction. This worked reasonably well. And the fact that while they all, and I can't say they were different, but you always got that impression that somewhere deep inside of them, they were different. Slightly different mannerisms. They've all got sort of, the main agenda is the same, but they've all got slightly different variations on how we're going to get there. Yeah. And to be honest, I think as much as you kind of have to like Apophis because he was the original system lord, 
And you've got to respect someone that dies that many times and just keeps on going. <laughs> yeah. I think Baal might be my favourite system lords. I think they did more with him than any other, without a doubt. I think the problem was, they, maybe not the, I think with Baal, it feels like they made the conscious effort to make a character, whereas Apophis always felt more like the sort of, you're the stereotype bad guy. The fact that they didn't do so much work on the character's background, foundation, that they really couldn't build upon him further into the series. Uh, maybe the writers at that point had enough experience to know that we're going to bring in a new system lord. Let's face it, they tried quite often to introduce a new system lord, and very few of them stuck around for very long. It may have been the fact that Cliff Simon hit the right note with the fans and with the producers that we've got to keep this guy around, and we've got to make an effort to create a character that can be built upon. Everything fitting together in the right way. Apophis, you give him the power that Ra had, doesn't work, because that's not the character. I think it helps as well. You kind of only ever saw Apophis get his ass kicked. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't get much in the way of solid victories. Not counting the brief scenes in Summit and Last Stand, first time you really see Baal. The episode where he's torturing O'Neill to death over and over <laughs> and over again. Oh, what an entrance. That makes an impression. And he did it with style. Mm. I think the other thing I like about Baal, which is, again, something that crops up a little bit later in this one, is he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Oh, no. It's like when Baal's had enough of you, Baal's going to kill you. And when I say Baal will kill you, I actually mean he's going to kill you. He's not just going to snap his fingers and get whichever poor sod's been delegated to be first prime this week to blow you away with a staff weapon. Oh, no, no, no. He is going to get said staff weapon and do the job himself. <laughs> I mean, a lot of that could just be the old, if you want something done properly, do it yourself. That is true. I'm a sucker for a bad guy that actually does rather than just says to do. Well, strangely enough, I've got a note further on, which is show and tell. And that's what they did in this episode. We're on board the Odyssey. some reason, they've got the blueprints of Bowles' attack. Whether or not it's significantly different from the standard ship of the line, we assume it is. They're on about really big storage bays, suitable for containing multiple Stargates. Nerus, as soon as he gets on board the ship, not embraced, but welcomed on board by Bal, he goes to a computer terminal, starts uploading all his programs, all his apps and everything. Porn. Yeah. <laughs> God, I hate... Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to take that any further, because, <laughs> no, you know he's got a Grok collection. Some bright spark at the SGC or Area 51 have developed some malware for... Uh, the devices starts automatically infiltrating the ship systems. And again, this is what I'm saying. Dr. Lee, off-screen, gets the credit for it. Yeah. It's like, off-screen, Dr. Lee is a machine. He's like a science god. <laughs> On-screen, oh, so sweet. And this was the show and tell, because on one part of the conversation, we're getting the mission being relayed to us by Carter. This is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. And we're also seeing it as well. This allows the Odyssey to approach the Hatak. Shields are down, the sensors are down. They can detect the transmissions from the tags. So much so that, hey, we can even beam on board. Then individually tag every Stargate. And this is where SE-1 beam on board. And we get a ridiculously over-the-top but incredibly beautiful pose. Silhouetted. Black silhouetted. Blue lights in the background. Three of them on the knees, weapons extended, and tilt standing in the background, both arms widespread, holding machine guns. You know someone spent a ridiculous amount of time to get that shot just so. 
The cinematography on board Battleship is stunning. Lighting technicians and the DP really went to town. It's still got the fires, the braziers, so they're still giving light. And I'm mad, I think, with blue LEDs. You know, it's like when you get a strip of blue LEDs and you think, these shells are going to look fantastic, but they never quite do. And also, I think part of the visual of this is apparently Tilk has decided that I prefer Earth weapons now. Yeah. <laughs> to start with, annoyed me. It's like, he should be rocking the star for it's that. But then you discover Tilk's seeming enjoyment of, hmm, P90, not enough. Two P90s. <laughs> Hello, dual wheel. Yeah. And that somehow works. It's like, we could just give him the biggest machine gun we can find, which on occasion we do see. I mean, it's like, dual wielding just works. It's like, you know, you can have Thor with a hammer, Thor with an axe. Or you can have both. <laughs> Why have just one machine gun when I can have two? That means I can shoot people to the left of me and the right of me. Yep, always convenient. As if I was not scary enough. Meanwhile, Bol is stamping through his ship because he knows what's happened. Yeah, Bol's connected those dots. He gets to the door, which is only partly open, and he looks at it in disgust as he lifts up his robes and steps over it. It amazes <laughs> me that they haven't actually got him go. Yes. Uh, you almost feel, whoever designed the ship, I'm going to kill. Yeah. And the engineers, I'm going to kill them as well. Once I've done what I came here to do, this isn't my killing for the day. This is just the start of the wrath. I had to step over a door. I had to lift my robe. <laughs> Robes are supposed to swoosh around, not get hoiked for me to step up. No, I'm going to kill him. Then I'm going to kill the tailor for making the robes. Fortunately, there is no Jafar nearby who witnessed this terrible, terrible event. Otherwise, they'd be dead as well. You're going to lose faith in your divine god, aren't you? If... Yeah, why didn't you levitate and float over the door, yeah. sir? Yeah, or why didn't you just, you know, with a gesture of your hand, force the doors all the way open? I'm starting to think those other Jafar that formed their government, they might be on something. <laughs> yeah, Bol's empire collapsed because he raised his foot and had to climb over a door. You can just imagine him going along to the other Jafar. It's like, I ain't going to believe what I just seen. <laughs> I don't think our god is actually all that godlike. Small events lead to empires toppling. All that garbage that we heard from that Tilk, is his name, and Braytac? Yeah. I think they might actually be onto something. Yeah, this is where everybody running around trying to capture Shovar kind of backfired because everybody knew him. Yep. If they'd have kept it quiet. Yeah, exactly. Maybe don't publicise when uh, First Prime goes rogue because, oh look, there's now a government built around him. <laughs> uh, Baal finally gets to Neris. Neris is looking a little bit worried. He's desperately trying to fix the problem. I like this moment because where we said that Baal had connected the dots, <laughs> Neris has connected the dots as well. And he's done the math and he knows what's going to happen if he can't fix this problem five seconds ago. And I even love that little bit where he starts talking to himself. You're much more devious than I gave you credit for, General. Yes, he kind of knows he's been played. And then there's almost as, as terrified as he is. It's that little situation. It's like, on the one hand, I'm actually kind of annoyed that I got played by the human. That's a little part of me, though. Gotta respect it. I thought I was playing him when the whole time, tell me. I'll give you that one. You know, if I survive the next 
five minutes. Which was really not... <laughs> oh, hi, Bob. Really didn't want to see you. And again, bold, calm, confident. Really? No, I'm, my guest is seething inside, but it doesn't show. And he listens to Nerus giving his excuses, his reasons, and he takes a step towards the Jaffar. He takes the staff weapon. Nerus steps aside. Uh, shooting, it won't help. <laughs> and we see the staff weapon just move to the left and Nerus, oh. <laughs> now, you see, that would have been the moment that I would have tried to give Nerus a little bit of dignity. It's like, yeah. yeah, we don't see him get, we don't see what happens, but we know what happens. Or we could just go all in on the character and go, but I'm so interesting. <laughs> it's like, oh, hell, I've been like, I was on the fence about doing this, but now, no, sod it. I'm just going to staff you in the face. I suppose that's it. I mean, obviously, the stupidity of Nerus getting played, Ball can't accept that. He's become a liability. No matter if he solved the problem right this second, it would always be that liability. You could never trust him again. You got conned by the humans once. Yeah. I can't trust that it's not going to happen again. No. So that's the end of Nerus. Back with SG-1, they find the main cargo bay. It is quite big. It's not the best map painting we've seen in the show, even though, uh, obviously, lots of it's in shadows. But we'll give them that again. This is where... I think Cam, once again, I don't know if he's trying to make up for some bad decisions. He kind of goes it alone. You get on with your job, let me handle the guards. And you think, yeah, okay, Cam, you know, there's only you, really. It does kind of feel like, hold my hands up, goofed on the planet. But then again, it could have just also been, I can look really cool and shoot bad guys. Or I can tag Stargate. One of those jobs sounds fantastic. (laughs) Danger of getting shot, yes, but cool visuals. No, I'm, I'm going to shoot bad guys. Yeah. What's the point of having a big gun like this if you don't get to use it? I bought the toys with me, but it's a shame not to use them. <laughs> I mean, I know what Sam was thinking as soon as she saw me pick that off the rack. She's like, oh, okay. have to justify the gun. Especially because Tilk went with... Okay, he went with two, but he went with the small gun. I deliberately went with the big gun, so I've got to make that count for something. Again, we see the benefit of having proper armourer on staff using not live rounds, blanks, obviously. You cannot beat proper weapons fire. No amount of CGI, as they're getting close, I'll give them that, can replicate the sheer beauty of a gun firing with the camera shutter timed so you actually see the muzzle flash. You can see the actor reacting to actual recoil. Yes. As opposed to, okay, I need you to act like really. It's like, no. I mean, nine times out of ten, if it's possible to get away with a practical effect go for the practical effect it will look better Phil is having the time of his life as well this is when three more attacks exit hyperspace the three Lucian Alliance starships again bullshit sensors are down they can't detect them either Emerson attempts to communicate with the ships they're not listening they targeting sensors on bullshit now this is normally not a big problem unfortunately SG-1 are on bullshit and they don't have shields either yeah, I love that initial moment when you just see the three Hutucks arrive because you're like, could be reinforcements for Baal, which would be bad news for us. Or it could be the Lucian Alliance, which is also bad news for us. <laughs> Either way, our day just got worse. Yeah, there's an outside chance that maybe it's the free Jafar, but I very much doubt it. Yeah. And to be honest, we've pissed them off a lot as well. So <laughs> at this point... It's even money if they're going to help. It's like, 
if it's Braytac on the ship, we're fine. And then the other people that seem to be an authority in that government, it's gross. <laughs> we know it's getting a bit uh, hectic when Daniel joins the party. He starts opening up on some of the Jafar as well. The Sargates are all tagged. Did they say there were 12 of them? I think uh, 12. Either way, it's an infeasible number of Stargates to have in one place. Yes, it, it certainly is. Credit to one of Bowles' technicians. He gets the sensors back online. They detect the four ships. Nobody's very happy about that, especially Ball. He's not going to give an inch. Anybody threatening Ball, he's going to always react the same. Calm, confident, arrogant, up yours. I'm completely outnumbered. My ship is barely functional. But no, I'm still going to bang Ball, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to give up. Who do you think I am? So the uh, Lucian Alliance start firing... They get some hits on the weapons and FTL. That's when the shields go up, which is seconds after SG-1 actually says, right, we're ready to go. You just know that when... It's like, it's like maybe there was something to this, just having a day where everything goes against you. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this bad timing thing is a thing. It could be karma. At some point, it's going to come round and bite you. It's a payback. We spent eight years looking cool beyond belief. Is this where the rot sets in now? Have we had our luck? Yeah, it's all downhill from now on. Is this the real reason that O'Neill wanted out? Did he know this was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, he put his retirement in, got his 30 years. Right, I'm set. <laughs> I'm at. Emerson decides to open up on the Lucian Alliance with the Odyssey's railguns. Well, big deal. <laughs> Absolutely no damage to the Lucian Alliance ships, but the Odyssey shields are down 11%. That's not good. That's when Sam has an idea. You can always count on Sam to have an idea. And it's a blinder as well. It's just a question of whether you've got time for Sam to tell you what the plan is and then tell you what the plan is again, but dumb it down for you to understand. Or just trust me and do what I tell you. I'll explain it to you later. Just go with me on this. Bowl's ship loses its shields. Odyssey beams the gates on board, except for one. They lose track of one. That's when the ship goes boom. One attack totally blown to bits. And Odyssey, faced with three uh, Lucian Alliance attacks, jumps to FTL and does a runner in the best tradition of the SGC. It's like, look, this ship is brand spanking new. Yeah, we haven't even paid for it yet. <laughs> it's like, we can't blow this ship up on its maiden voyage. Because, spoiler alert, we're doing that in the finale. <laughs> this ship we need to keep intact, so let's just get the fudge out of here. And you know what? They're SG-1. I'm sure they're fine. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if when we get back to Earth, they're waiting for us. Yeah, they'll probably be sat down. Oh, what took you guys so long? <laughs> We've been here for days. Yep, and indeed, we go back to the SGC. SG-1R indeed, coming home. They reprogrammed the DHD for one of the gates because they were stationary, because they were able to set it up as a location, just like Baal intended to do, reprogramming the network. I think Peter Deloise is in the background again. I think this is the second time I think I saw him. I'm glad the fact that they pointed out we've got to inform the Odyssey. Because yeah. Emerson and the crew might be thinking, we didn't save anyone. Yeah, right now Emerson's thinking, how do I break this news? He's setting the self-destruct in shame. And you know what? I'm just going to make the most of sitting in this chair because I don't think I'm going to be sitting it much longer. You saved 11 Stargates, but you didn't save SG-1. You had one job. The Stargates were not your priority. It wasn't our Stargate. It was someone else's Stargate. Over there is over there's problem. Yeah, but surprisingly, for a mission that went badly very, very quickly, 
continue to go badly for the next two days. It hasn't turned out too bad. I'd about to say, as outcomes go, this is pretty much much more than you were expecting. Yes. Like, you know, first and foremost, we came home alive. The Odyssey's in one piece, so that's a good. We've flown up at least one bar, as far as they know. They don't know oh, yeah. how many bars were on that ship. Been a good day, all told. I mean, yeah, okay. Started a bit sucky. Because, you know, they do still have the battle scars from earlier in the episode. We might have lots of advanced technology, but we don't have Star Trek medical technology that will just wave this glowy light and, oh, look, damage gone. Way. Yeah, that's true. Mitchell gets to, we have got the best jobs in the world, don't we? And the more experienced that you won, yeah. Carter, I'm going to hit the shower. Daniel, I'm going to see a doctor. I'm going to find a doctor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tilk, we are indeed suitably employed. <laughs> uh, the straight man, you cannot beat him. Which lends credence to, that is what makes me think it would be Tilk that dropped the F-bomb. Yeah. Normally, you'd think that Tilk would be the first one to walk away from that situation. And then Daniel, and then maybe Sam just give him sort of like a pat on the shoulder and it's like... I say, overall though, that was a great episode. If there's a weak link in the episode, I think it's Neris. It's not what he does is bad. As I say, when we were sort of saying that maybe there were scenes sort of, sort of earlier on that were sort of cut for time, it's maybe the Nera stuff that I would have cut for time. Well, there are a couple of scenes that basically covered the same ground. I mean, Neris basically as much as says that he's a waste of space, when he basically says to Landry, you've got all the answers, which he pretty much does. Could have maybe cut Neris and then, you know, just combined Landry's... I'm going to say skills. The man's pretty good at what he does. Yeah. You've already referenced that you've been getting dispatches from the Tokra. Yeah, you didn't have to have Neris there. You could have said that we have got some information out of him and that this ties in with what we've just learned from the Tokra. Mm. And also, it's just love the fact it's like, wow, you are that out of favour with the Tokra now that they're not even actually physically coming to give you this news? They're just <laughs> WhatsApping you now? Yeah. Wow, they really don't like you. This is because you worked with Baal, isn't it? <laughs> It's like, we'll ignore the fact that Jacob was along there, so you're doing it, because, you know, he got what was coming to him in the next episode. FYI, I hate they did that. I think we see, what, the Tok'ra maybe twice more? Which, considering how prominent they were, and yeah, when the Goa'uld are no longer the big threat, a Goa'uld resistance movement does kind of fall down the ranking. It's like, you actually had an alliance with these people. You signed paperwork. And yeah, we know they were a little bit uppity and, you know, when we were talking about characters that were maybe bought on for because of Axis X appeal. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But at the same time, Tokra. That's sort of part and parcel with Stargate. Then to become so not there. They certainly had a role to play post Gwold. But like you say, it's like they drew a line in, drew a line in the sand. Yeah, well, yeah. And the Gwold were gone. There's just remnants about with mainly Bol. No need to have the Tokra, no need to have this, no need to have that. Sideline the Jafar, we'll just have them popping up now and again. Give Tilk something to concentrate on when we need a B story or something like that. They were maybe too invested in the Ori, to the detriment of what had gone before. Difficult to tell, because a lot of people like the Ori, and they were certainly a step above the Gold in terms of threat level. But then they gave them the problem of how do we defeat them? And while the Ark of Truth as a standalone is, is reasonable, it's okay, they did kind of pull the solution out of their hat. It does come across as convenient. A little bit on the easy side. 
as is evidenced by the fact to kind of make the movie work, we had to reintroduce replicators because we needed to fill time, which I would have thought, you keep talking about how the Ori are apparently coming for Earth. Maybe that's what you show us. <laughs> yeah. Actually have the Ori come for Earth. Maybe this is the moment we have to go public with the Stargate because, oh, look, big scary spaceships that we know SG-1 aren't going to blow up on the last second because they're in a different galaxy. Yeah, just make it a little bit more difficult for them, that's all. That's just going to make it all the more impressive when they rock up and <laughs> yes, do it. When they actually do it, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Ori ship crashes outside of Washington. Amongst the rubble, you see little rocks moving and Tilk walks up and then somebody shoots him. <laughs> Alien. <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> and then the rest of SG-1, oh my God, they've taken human form already. Kill him! <laughs> yeah. I know people whinge about unending as a finale. It worked for me as a finale. The only problem is you haven't wrapped up the Ori. Yeah, it would have been tragic if they had got the, the TV movie. As much as I like Continuum, it kind of feels like something that was made because they'd agreed to make it. It doesn't really add anything. Unending, literally having the Asgard next to the Tok'ra have been there for us more or less since the beginning. All of that stuff kind of works as a finale for your show if you've already dealt with the big bad that you've spent two seasons building up but to finish the show and it's like but what about the all right they're, they're still there what, what what's that about yeah because because again i mean we learned after the fact that this this was one season where they thought they were going to get renewed whereas previous seasons they thought they were going to get cancelled well that's the thing isn't it i mean they were supposed to have been cancelled from what the end of season five yeah season six was a gimme and then they got seven, and that was supposed to wrap everything up because that was then going to lead into Atlantis. But no, we carried on going. So to be honest, you can kind of sit there and think, I can understand why they were confident that they were going to get a season 11 because they keep coming back. Which has to be said, although it's got detractors, season nine and ten were really good. And a lot of that is Ben Browder. Yeah. If you tried to carry on season nine where you left off with season eight, it wouldn't have worked. As much as I like O'Neill, O'Neill only works if he's out in the field. It has to be said, a sad reflection of what the character was when he appeared in the universe. It was great to see him on the show. You know, you're thinking, not, not Richard Dean Anderson, Jack O'Neill. He can't like this. Actually being in command of the SGC ended up being a little bit better than he had expected it to. But I don't think it's in his character to be a desk jockey. It's not. And then, because you've got the character that you're used to seeing running around shooting aliens. Season 8 then feels to me like it's an exercise in, okay, how do we either A, get O'Neill off-world, or B, have things happen in the SGC? RDA's been trying to get out of this for a while now. He's absent for a lot of Season 7. It's like, either give Don S. Davis another season as Hammond, bring Landry in earlier. And I get, though, that that's the structure you promote from within. So it makes sense as an example of the U.S. Air Force that you promote from within. So, yes, obviously, O'Neill would get that job. Doesn't work as TV. No. The idea of Carter going off to run Atlantis, it's not outside the realms of possibility. But again, it's the taking the character that you've seen out there doing the job, as opposed to giving the orders for someone else to do the job. Even though you don't like Carter as a character getting shafted, I was kind of relieved when she was taken away from Atlantis because it wasn't working. 
and it kind of makes you like the character a little bit less because you sat there and you think you're being wasted i was totally sold on Woolsey. it, it worked for me that's the thing initially when you realize when you find out Woolsey's going to be in charge you think atlantis is going to sink <laughs> and not by design he's just going to screw it up so badly but he works out really well i think this is what atlantis does it takes unlikable characters and it really redeems them because let's be honest beginning of atlantis you didn't like mckay because you'd only seen mckay in stargate yeah and he was designed to be disliked in sg1 so for them to actually bring him in as a full-time character it's like but he's obnoxious He's the guy that, at the same time as calling Carter a dumb blonde, is hitting on her, and he thinks that's going to work? Probably about halfway through season one, you're like, oh my god, I actually love McKay. They've taken this horrible, horrible caricature of a person, and they've somehow made a character. <laughs> well, a few years in Russia do that to you. <laughs> Smoothed over some of the rough edges. Not all of them, because you still, you still need him to be McKay. You actually make him likeable as a character. Almost by the end, you almost kind of make him lovable as a character. You do sort of get to the point where it's like, I'm now rooting for McKay, and I don't even realise how or when that happened. He certainly comes on leaps and bounds. I mean, he goes from becoming this person who was only interested in himself to somebody who pick up a gun and run towards fire to support his members of his... Not even just members of his own team. I do also like the fact, though, that they don't fall into the same trap they did with Daniel. They don't all of a sudden turn McKay into an action hero. Oh, oh no. He's still very much McKay, and he's still very obviously not at home with the guns. He's just accepted that occasionally, sometimes I have to stop doing the science and do the shootings. So you think, OK, you've redeemed McKay. There's no way you can redeem Wolsey. But somehow, apparently lightning does strike twice. <laughs> Right then, folks, we are well within to, we're well into the third hour of recording this podcast. <laughs> this conversation could go on quite further because we've left SG-1 behind and we're well into the season four and season five of Atlantis. We're still on Stargate, though. That is true, we're still on Stargate. We have talked about Off the Grid, a late season nine episode, highly entertaining, well-produced, well-written, some great character pieces, lots of action. We've seen the uh, death of one villain, whether or not it was a suitable death or not, that's up to debate. Depends what you think. Next episode is going to be The Scourge, which Tim has chosen. Hmm. That will be for next time. Any final thoughts on Off the Grid, Tim? It's one of those things, the later you get with Stargate, the less casual viewer friendly it gets. True. Off the Grid, I think, is one you could get away with as a casual watcher. There's enough backstory given in the previously on and throughout the episode, which again doesn't feel too much like exposition. You, I think you could come into this having never watched Stargate, or you've dipped in and out of early. So once you once you get over the fact, isn't that Crichton from Farscape? I think this, and to be honest, same with The Scourge, work pretty much as isolated episodes, as well as, obviously, if you know, works within the greater arc. But you could just plonk someone down and say, I've got 45 minutes, what should I watch? Like, yeah, give you off the grid. You're not going to walk away thinking, I'm so confused. Yeah, can't disagree. I sat down, I watched that episode, I followed it perfectly. Forget the fact that I'm well-versed in most things Stargate. Thoroughly enjoyed it, satisfied with the ending. 
didn't need to check up on what the previous three episodes were, which some things I have done in the past. I'm all for big story arcs. Previously mentioned B5, the whole thing's one big story arc. Yeah. There's something to be said for just 45 minutes of TV that is an episode in its own right. You don't need to have watched 500 seasons beforehand. You don't need to watch the 500 that come next. You just sit, you'll watch an episode. The story starts in minute one and it's finished by the end of 45. Boom, done. Okay then, folks, that was Off The Grid. Thank you very much for joining us and listening to the podcast. If you want to get in touch, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, then feel free to get in touch with me. Do it. It's fun. <laughs> and it's an excuse to watch Stargate. What more do you need? There you go. If you want to get in touch with us, stargatearchives at gmail.com. Our website is stargatearchives.com. You can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, oh, and Twitter, at The Gatecast. Probably really should have changed that name when we swapped over, but I kept it running. Now I can't be bothered. You can find the podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Podbay, TuneIn. Uh, we have RSS feeds for both the Gatecast and Stargate archives, which you can copy and paste into any podcatcher. Ratings and reviews on uh, iTunes are always welcome. But apart from that, just keep watching Stargate. Keep annoying MGM uh, via uh, Twitter campaign that Stargate Europe now are running. Who knows, it might work, it might not. Tim, thank you very much for joining me. Always a pleasure. We are going to be doing The Scourge next. Hope you tune in for that as well. No plans for your own podcast, Tim? It's been a while now. Yeah, I don't think we're going to make a triumphant comeback anytime soon. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, never say never, but at the same time, probably wouldn't lose money if you bet on it not happening. Right over then. Okay then, folks. Take care. I've been Mike. And I'm Tim. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye.